public health, or personal rights. This hour, public health, understanding why it's important. Join Frank Falvey and our roundtable of regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's executive director for health and human services, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people navigate the unique journey of America toward a more perfect union. Hello, this is Frank Falvey with a journey toward a more perfect union, and we have our Standard panel, Michael Walker-Jones with his uh, uh, sunglasses on. <laughs> Hi, Frank. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Did you, you wear them at night? Uh, they're actually not sunglasses, but... Okay. <laughs> and we have this wonderful smile by Natalie, right? I hope someday you can meet her just so you can see this beautiful smile. Thank you so much. Good morning, Frank. And uh, Representative Jeff Roy. Jeff, is, is this a very busy season for legislators? It, it certainly is. Uh, we've done a, a major piece of legislation already, and we are just uh, winding up to do the budget in just about a week and a half. So uh, it's as busy as it ever gets at the State House. And PJ, hey. how's everything with, with the cable and uh, communication? And We are dancing as fast as we can you know, to stay ahead of the virus and all that means. So, so yeah, we've been busy, even though know, I've been working from home uh, more days than not, but it's a good busy. Well, this morning, we're going to cover different aspects of public health. Maybe, PJ, you'd like to begin with some of the history of public health. Well, public health is one of those terms, I think, Frank, that People don't know quite how to conjure it. They know that it's out there. They know, oh, there's public health. Yeah, and they nod up and down. And, you know, it doesn't fall far away from things like highway safety and you know, other things that we think are generally, you know, decent ideas and whatnot. But, but there's more granularity there and, and more history. And I think also a discussion about more responsibility there than meets the eye. Um, as far as, you know, when did public health happen? Uh, it was gradual. But one interesting point uh, is that there is a doctor by the name of John Snow in England, and his history is that he was a researcher by nature, uh, that he was curious, and that brought him to generate a couple of significant contributions to medicine, one being research into the then 1854 outbreak of cholera in England, and he was trying to understand where it came from. There were a number of prevailing theories at the time, one being the miasma theory that somehow or other it spreads through the air, where miasma was basically a sort of a broad placeholder for the concept of airborne germs and viruses. And then there was the notion of waterborne disease and the germ theory itself, that there was something living in the water. And so he started tracing the source of cholera and through statistics and looking at the locus of infections in a certain neighborhood, he was able to find a cluster of a cholera outbreak that wrapped around a common well. And the well was you know, located in a certain square on Broad Street in England. And he went and removed the handle from the well and watched the cholera outbreaks dissipate in that neighborhood as an existence proof. 
He also did some research on two water sources in the Thames River, and the two water sources gave him two groups. So he also is sort of the inadvertent creator of the double-blind survey and is considered by many to be the father of modern epidemiology. If you'd like to know more about this, you can actually uh, go to Wikipedia and Google the 1854 Broad Street cholera outbreak. Uh, It's a really fascinating in-depth read on what happened, and I recommend it. So that's sort of one area where a private physician rose to meet the public good. I can jump in here, Pete, to, mm-hmm. to share, you know, we're in the midst of a global pandemic and a lot of people who hadn't heard the term epidemiology now have. And um, now, you know, public health is kind of top of mind. But in many ways, health, as defined by the WHO, is not simply the absence of, of disease. It is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being. And it is broader than just not having cholera. A lot mm. of us think about communicable diseases, right? These mm infections that we get, tuberculosis, HIV. But in fact, what kills most people prematurely is chronic disease. It's right now, today. That wasn't the case of during the Jon Snow era. You know, it's it's cancers, it's cardiovascular disease. It's um, these other issues that have more to do with what some people like to call individual behaviors, you know, smoking or drinking or eating too much. But again, public health is not about individual behavior. It's about how do we set up our society in a way that promotes health and well-being? How do we ensure that we have green parks? How do we ensure that we have workplaces that are safe? How do we ensure that we have homes and you know laws like getting um, asbestos or lead out of our water pipes? You know, these are all the current issues that public health deals with. And in fact, the challenge of defining public health is that when public health does it work, does its work right, we don't know it is working. It is during times of crisis like now when we have seen a complete failure of public health to to you know to respond accurately. That's when we actually pay attention to it. So it's a silent protection and prevention sort of approach to to health and well-being. And it's important for the audience to know the difference between a doctor and a nurse and a frontline healthcare worker and someone like me who's an epidemiologist or a public health worker is that your doctor cares about you as an individual. What I care about is patterns of disease distribution and how do we change that? I look at Massachusetts and I say, you know, Chelsea is a hotspot of COVID and it's not because of the residents, the individuals. You know, if I were a doctor of someone in Chelsea, I would say, you know, this is what you need to do. But I'm looking at the population level and saying, you know, what have we done wrong in terms of our communities, our public transportation, our, you know, are we putting in place rules and laws? So it's a lot about rules and laws. And actually, public health shares a lot with even police and military in the sense that we have public health has given some authorities at time to take measures that other groups wouldn't, like quarantining. Um, and maybe, I don't know, Rep, um, Representative Roy, you know, Jeff, do you want to speak a little bit to that, the emergency measures versus boards of health and and kind of you know, why do we allow public health to have authority? Well, you know, it's, you know, government is is one of those, uh, one of its roles is to make things safe, safe water to drink, safe air to breathe. And as you were talking just now, um, Natalia, I was thinking about two bills that I have filed in this particular ses- uh, session that go right to issues of public health. One of us is, is an act creating an obesity task force and pilot program, 
We know that uh, obesity leads to a number of diseases. And, you know, we're trying to develop some public health programs that can help people deal with the disease of obesity. And it'll perhaps present some of these chronic diseases that impact them for their whole life. And it's a bill that's got uh, the support of the American Cancer Society, the American Heart and Stroke Association, the Alliance of the uh, YMCAs, the Mass Health Council, and the Mass Medical Society. They're all coming in to say, okay, what can you do as a government to help us in that particular arena? The second one is the, uh, the bill dealing with primary seatbelt. And uh, I've sponsored that for the last two sessions. And that is another public health type bill. You know, uh, seatbelts came into vogue only because uh, we began to enact laws requiring the use of seatbelts uh, in vehicles uh, because we know that seatbelts, they promote safety, they save lives, and they save money. And uh, Massachusetts, as a matter of fact, ranks 46th in the nation in seatbelt use, and it lags the national rate by about 10%. So I have introduced this legislation that would give police officers the opportunity uh, to pull somebody over if they see them not wearing a seatbelt. Right now, a police officer in Massachusetts cannot pull somebody over for uh, a seatbelt violation unless there's something else that goes wrong. And I will say that just last year, uh, we lost uh, 400 people uh, to deaths in automobile safety. And uh, you know, seatbelt use increases uh, safety. It also saves us on health insurance costs. Uh, the costs associated with uh, not using seatbelts in Massachusetts alone uh, is about $500 million over a five-year time span. So safety, saving money, and uh, saving lives are ob objects of this type of legislation. And, uh, you know, in, in the pandemic, which I believe we are beginning to see the end of it, uh, the you know, uh, a national, uh, I'm sorry, a state of emergency in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was declared by the governor so that he could exercise his emergency powers and authority to uh, shut down businesses, uh, you know, get, uh, you know, maintain order, uh, protect people from a rapidly communicating disease. That's all uh, public health related uh, laws and legislation that, you know, help to protect people. Uh, and I know that, uh, you know, I constantly hear in the space of uh, the obesity legislation, the seatbelt legislation, and even I've heard uh, hints uh, towards the governor that, you know, this is big brother. Well, it's not big brother. It's what we need to do as communities of individuals to live safely together it's these types of uh, laws that we need to, um, you know, make it safe for all of us to coexist. So uh, I think I'll stop there, but, uh, you know, it gives you a, a gist of what we look at from a legislative perspective. Well, I'm but glad you brought up the issue of Big Brother because I was just about to do that. I mean, I think we tried the, the requirement uh, around the seatbelt piece at one point in time. As a matter of fact, we went as far as to require 
passive restraints in automobiles. And if you remember those days, uh, you would go in and click your your seatbelt. And then when you got out of the car, instead of having to unlock your seatbelt, when you open the door, it would then passively let you out of the car. And then when you got back in the car, uh, you closed the door and the seatbelt would automatically be wrapped around you. And then we found that there were some issues about that and people complained around their personal freedoms. And I agree, Jeff, that there are things in terms of public health that do go to what I would call the very specific with regard to obesity. And if you remember a few years ago in New York City, they tried the uh, the caloric uh, requirements for size of drinks that had sugar in them. And, uh, you know, that didn't go over very well when, you know, when the city started to try to mandate, again, making people or forcing them to be healthy. So you've got that end of it, which people would call, yeah, well, that's those liberals and all of those uh, folks who want to put these restrictions on us. But then you've got the other direction, too, in terms of public health. There's the issue of economics and poverty, which has truly been an ignored part of some of our public health concerns. There's the issue of racism, uh, which, again, is another part that's becoming more and more to the fore. Things like uh, relegating residences of those people of color to high risk or highly volatile areas. Some of you may or may not be aware that, for example, Southern University, well-known, uh, highly prestigious university in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, is right on the uh, edge of an oil refinery. And actually, uh, Southern University was there first, but they built the oil refinery because it's a black community. And they said, well, what harm can it do with the black college here? And uh, many times uh, when you're on that campus, I mean, you get the stench of the refinery. Plus, that's a public health hazard at this point. Now we know that, you know, some of the gases and other things from, you know, that are generated there. Then you have the issue of, uh, as I said before, uh, just poverty. People who cannot afford to take care of themselves, uh, whether it's through food or health uh, you know, so public health is a very broad but very essential area, I guess, to uh, you know, to our whole living and structure of how we live uh, as a country. You're right, Michael, and I think this question of what falls under public health, you know, calling racism a public health crisis, which now over a hundred sort of municipalities and you know have done, like, what does that mean in practice? And I think the big challenge is. Who is responsible for public health? Is it you as an individual? You are responsible to eat your five portions of fruit and veggies. Is it your, you as an individual to walk for 45 minutes? Or is it the government's responsibility to make these choices available to you? And I will push back a little bit, Jeff, on the, and, and I'm sure you've heard this critique from more of the left, the, the, the seatbelt bill, like putting the police in charge of something we know in public health that policing bad behaviors rarely works. You know, right. you can't police uh, people's uh, smoking and, you know, you can put fines, you can do things, but it's the much more successful way is to convince and create an environment, incentivize good behavior. Uh, and the well, risk well. here with policing and you know, traffic stops is the inequities that we already have in who gets pulled 
to the side, you know, the, the racial inequities that I'm highlighting here. Like what risk are you putting on an individual who now might be more likely to interact with the police because of this traffic violation? And is it worth it? Is it worth that's, what they're- you know, That's uh, the arguments that I've heard against the bill. But I would say, statistically, the states that have a primary seatbelt enforcement have greater seatbelt use. I mean, that's a, a, a fact. And uh, the folks from AAA come in and the, the uh, National Traffic Safety Administration comes in and testifies in favor of this bill. And they present all the statistics that show when you have primary seatbelt enforcement, the, uh, the rates go up. And Massachusetts does not have primary enforcement. And therefore, uh, we are 10% less seatbelt use than the rest of the country. So I would argue that that data uh, does indicate that uh, that policing behavior does have an impact on the safety. Uh, with regard to the, um, the uh, racism aspect of it, uh, what has been suggested is that this be some mechanism for tracking whether stops have increased. And uh, the resistance there is that you put a police officer in a position of making assumptions about the race of the individual that they have stopped. And that puts both the police officer and the person who's being stopped in a very uncomfortable position because are you, are you then going to have a dialogue about what race is there. The, the solution that I have offered for that is why don't we make race a part of the license. And if you don't want to put it on the face of the license where everyone can see it, include it in the barcoded information. So therefore, you can, you can get the data that you need as to whether or not a law like this increases uh, unnecessary stops or not. But this, you know, is where, yeah. but this is where I agree with Natalia, Jeff, because I mean, I understand the statistic in terms of lives that might be saved, but at the same time too, uh, as a social scientist, I ask you this question. In those states where you have uh, a seatbelt as a primary enforcement tool uh, rather than secondary, what's the ratio then of increases in profile stops? And I understand that right now we don't have the data because we're not asking about race, but aren't we now raising the possibility and the probability of, of unintended outcomes here? Uh, and I would say that before we would implement a uh, a bill like a uh, like a, a primary seatbelt bill, that we get all that data in front of us first, because albeit we may be saving lives, we may be putting more lives at risk than we realize, or putting a community at risk in terms of again unfavorable stops. And then we get to the slippery slope of suddenly now we're dealing with well, in order to accumulate the data, we've got to look at race. And suddenly we're putting things on licenses that we really truly, uh, uh, and I'll say this to this group and to the world, we really truly don't understand. Uh, I was just involved in a survey in Alabama where we were looking at having people self-identify their, their ethnicity. Folks wanted to put down, well, let's have them identify their race according to iPads, which is the higher ed uh, sort of instructional piece for us with regard to data acquisition, race is defined in five terms, uh, Hawaiian Pacific Islander, uh, Asian, Black, African-American, uh, Hispanic, and white. 
Now, suddenly, when you look at that on its face, it sounds normal. But then suddenly you realize, wait a minute, what is white as a race? You know, I've seen some Hispanics who, by primary indication, look like they're white. And if they were to put down on their license, I'm white, you know, you know, what does it do? Uh, you know, so now we're into, you know, those kinds of things with regard to, again, and public health here. And here's where all of this intersects with public health. Because as I look at the, uh, I've been watching the, uh, uh, the trial of former uh, uh, Officer Chauvin. And I can tell you that from just commentary and with reports that I've seen so far, People of color who've been watching that trial are going through trauma. People of color who've been watching that trial have, uh, there's been an, uh, an uptick in terms of some mental health issues that are being reported as a result of people watching that. Suddenly we realize that just the exposure of these kinds of problems and controversies start to heighten the uh, uh, the emotional and mental state of people who have either experienced that kind of interaction with police or with authority. And so it becomes, I think, incumbent upon us from a public health issue. It's what's in our, what's in our societal best interest here. Uh, I hear you loud and clear on those points. Okay. And, and my suggestion was that you put the race piece on the license in a way that is not identifiable other than for use of statistical purposes. In other words, a police officer looking at a license is not going to see the race of the individual. It's stored in the barcode only for use for statistical purposes. And and that's to gather the data that has been raised as a a concern. And and I I think it's a legitimate concern and let's get an understanding. But I'm looking at it from a public Mm -hmm. safety perspective. We know that seatbelts save lives. We know that airbags save lives and airbags were required by the federal government. We know that these safety features save lives. So let's keep doing more to save more lives and look at it from the other perspective. So we have individuals saying, hey, I have a right to put myself in danger and I don't have to wear a seatbelt. I've heard that argument too. (laughs) What I say to them is, your failure to wear a seatbelt not only puts you in danger, but it puts other people in danger because you're going to have a tendency to lose control of that vehicle if something sudden happens and you are thrown out of the driver's seat while you're driving that vehicle. All of a sudden, your vehicle becomes a, a propulsion device that will smash into something because you don't have control. It could injure the occupants of your vehicle. It could injure pedestrians. It could injure anybody who's in the path of that moving vehicle. And to them, I say, your right to swing your fist ends at the tip of my nose. And you are becoming a a hazard on the roadways on occasions when you're not wearing your seatbelt. So you know, the, the racism perspective is important, but also let's recognize the ability to save lives, both of the individual who's driving and any individuals who may come in contact with that. Well, let me pose, yeah. this, but let me pose this to you, Jeff, then on, on another aspect of, again, legislation. Let's take, all right, so that's the individual piece with regard to the car, but how about uh, lead pipes? 
How about the fact that now, Jeff, as a legislator, I've got to deal with putting millions of dollars into the budget to replace lead pipes, which I know is a greater threat, believe it or not, than the public safety risk of seatbelts. But this is coming at a high price tag, and yet we'll kick that can down the road. And I guess it's really a matter of, here's where we get into, I think, what Natalia is saying in terms of uh, public health in the eye of the beholder. For those issues that are very popular, let's say that, you know, we can get a lot of speech and sort of uh, rhetoric around, uh, it's good, especially those that have little cost to them. But then what about those big things? Uh, Lead pipes uh, is one that comes to mind from our friends up in Flint. Okay, where the government didn't want to go in and do the thing that was right in order to save young children uh, and their families. So, you know, I think that we really have to sort of take a really deep dive into, and I think this topic is a great one for this. What is our social responsibility as citizens to each other around some of these broader aspects of public health, especially those where we know there's a big price tag in order to correct it? No question about it. I think you're leading right into what we're going to talk about next week with <laughs> the environment in yeah. climate legislation. Those are huge price tag uh, matters that deal with some really consequential uh, public health issues. Uh, and uh, you will hear uh, from the legislation that we also included a lot of environmental justice provisions in the bill to protect those communities who have been hottest hit uh, uh -huh. by these issues. So I don't want to steal the thunder from next week's show, but uh, you know, these, uh, there are some issues out there that are, are, are just huge and we have to tackle them and set our priorities about uh, what we're going to do first. We can't do everything at once. We, we understand that there's a scalability issue in how to address these. Uh, and the question is, how do we prioritize? That, Leah, I have a, a question. When it comes to certain diseases like scabies, like sexually transmitted diseases, is that a minor social problem or is that uh, more or less a, a important uh, epidemiological problem? So... They are important, um, especially if you're talking about sexually transmitted diseases, you know, reproductive health and reproductive justice is really important part of it. But let me, let me say two things. First uh, is that governments have a responsibility, according to the World Health Organization, for the health of their people, which can be fulfilled only by the provision of adequate health and social measures. That social piece is where the U.S. often falls behind other countries. And where we fall behind is providing adequate health care. Uh, not to go into that, but it is important to point out that the U.S. has spends the more more money than any other country on healthcare. Yet we don't provide universal health coverage, and we have worse health outcomes. And we only spend about three percent of our kind of health budget on public health on prevention. So there is something about recalibrating. To your point, Frank, about you know what falls within the remit and what matters. You know, for a sexually transmitted infection, you might be you know, you might see that later in terms of making sure you have access to, say, treatment. Do you have access to HIV drugs? Do you have, you know, what you need? 
from a prevention, from a public health perspective, it would be, did you have access to, you know, information in schools about how sexually transmitted infections, you know, are transmitted? Do you have access to contraceptives? Do you have access, um, do you have control over your rights? Do you have, et cetera, et cetera. So public health is sort of the, the prevention piece, and then the healthcare comes in for the treatment piece. And somehow our budgets are way, way sort of skewed towards the treatment piece, and we're not doing enough on the prevention piece. Um, and that costs us money as, as, as a government and as a society. And it is, you know, I keep on going back to the fact that we are one of the wealthiest countries in the world and yet have poor health outcomes in many ways because we do have these huge challenges of poverty, of racism, of environmental injustice. So as a public health expert, I consider that as part of my remit. Many doctors don't. They sort of say, this is too big. You know, I, I look at my patient. So I think that's the difference between medicine and, and public health. Um, and I want to say sort of thank you to Jeff and, and Michael for having this conversation because public health is tricky. There are always trade-offs. It's not a clear cut. Yes, this will save the most lives because there will always be costs and benefits. And you can't really put a price to a life and you can't put a price to the mental health impact. So say we save more lives from, you know, people not dying in car crashes. But, you know, I've looked at data. Actually, there's a, a student at, at the Harvard School of Public Health looking at the percentage of youth being stopped by the police by race ethnicity. And it's something tremendously shocking, something like one in four, uh, you know, black youth. And, and then the mental health consequences. They're looking at long-term depression, anxiety. So there are so many things that we don't measure well. We measure death pretty well. And so we often... Think of metrics and laws to prevent death, but everything else on the continuum of, you know, poor health outcomes, morbidity, what we call in public health, we're, we're sort of not doing as good a job to, to what the World Health Organization is calls to promote well-being and health, like healthy lives. So how do we shift that frame from let's prevent people from dying to let's invest in healthy lives? And that's what I hope public health of the future will do. Well, let's go for a minute to community. In in every community, you have a board of health. The board of health has a, a an agent. What is the history of the board of health? What's the purpose? And I learned just recently that the fire chief, if, the, if there's a natural or some sort of disaster in your community, it is the fire chief that is in charge of everything, and everyone reports, in essence, to the fire chief. How how on a community basis? The Board of Health is, to me, part of public health. But what's its? how do you see its function? You know, I think uh, one of the things that um, I'll call to your attention in that discussion um, that Board of Health really led uh, was on some of the smoking cessation efforts. And, you know, Boards of Health are, are very powerful um, agencies in each community, and it's really a matter of, of local control and, and they can dictate, uh, you know, uh, standards for restaurants and whether they can be open and protocols that they have to take. The actual uh, bill about sale of cigarettes in a community, I, that's, the, that's the piece where the boards of health really led, uh, you know, raising the age to 21 uh, was something that we were pushed into as a legislature uh, from actions taken by uh, our local boards of health. And we rely on them. They're powerful. 
But uh, as you saw in the pandemic, it was the governor who exercised all of the power and authority under the civil defense uh, laws and regulations that were put in place, you know, 50 years ago. And, you know, his actions could uh, supersede things that were um, the boards of health were, were doing, including the delivery uh, of the vaccines, uh, as we saw, you know, the, the, the governor took control of that distribution effort uh, from the um, from the local boards of health. But it is it's a very, very, very tricky balance uh, as to how to get this right. I am hopeful and thankful that uh, in many of the decisions that were made, we relied on science. And science can help us uh, make uh, informed decisions in this particular area. And, uh, you know, I'm particularly will make note of uh, how talented our local uh, Board of Health agent is here in Franklin and uh, the incredible job that uh, she has done. And uh, I'll, I'll share with you that I get updates uh, weekly from uh, the Department of Public Health and the governor's office about what's going on. I get uh, alerts if there are problems in any particular facilities in the community. I just uh, did get a call about an outbreak of uh, COVID in a nursing home. I was shocked that uh, to this day, we're still having that as a problem, but uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of communication and activity that goes on every single day in this public health space. And let me throw this out there as well with regard to uh, the fire chief. I think that's, in some instances, it's by statute. In some instances, it's community specific. For example, I know in large cities, it's not the fire chief. They have a, uh, if there's an emergency, they have a whole structure set up uh, that puts uh, almost a FEMA type agency in charge and then it's a coordination of other department heads, uh, of which always the, you know, the head of the public health department is one of those top officials who part of that decision-making tree. So in our community, it could be the police chief simply because of the size of our community. But uh, as communities grow, that decision-making tree starts to expand. And I'll add to that, I was in New York City during Ebola. I mean, at that time, we thought it was a big deal. And I was working as the science advisor to the health commissioner. She, We create a parallel structure, as uh, Michael talks, that's like the incident command structure that is in charge of you know phone calls and making sure. But the commissioner, you protect her time for public speaking, so she can't oversee the day-to-day incident command. She needs to be the public-facing, the person who's giving the briefings, the person who's... So you actually do have this parallel structure to deal with logistics that protects the time of the public health folks who need to be doing some of the science or the research. But I do want to say that during COVID, we have seen commissioner after commissioner, local health official after local health official be fired, quit, be harassed in numbers that we have never seen in recent years. And it is unprecedented. And, you know, it is something that should trouble us. The fact that our these people who have committed their careers to pr- protect and promote public health have been harassed or have been exhausted or have burnt out to such a degree that they have left their jobs. And now we have real gaps to fill in the future. Uh, one of the things I want to address, well, two points that Natalia brought up that I think are associated. Very early on, you had mentioned the fact that somehow or other among public health officials, there's been this failure. And I want to eliminate that right away. And point two uh, that I'll put together is that you more recently mentioned 
about the amount of money that we spend on solving the problems as a cure uh, on the health system versus addressing the issue in a preemptive way. And we all know that old adage, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I would say that an ounce of prevention goes way beyond a pound of cure. Uh, and unfortunately, our statistics don't really live up to that. So that said, and getting back to the notion of failure, uh, I think we need to talk about the fact that for reasons unbeknown to me, there are either manufactured or natural antagonistics, antagonistic people who challenge public health officials. Statistically, we know, for instance, that right now among white evangelicals, the vaccination rate is anticipated to be only 45%. What is it about that group and their leadership that takes that position that's clearly opposed to science? Meanwhile, we look at the black community that is dealing with two issues. Issue number one, uh, Tuskegee, the history, the whole bit, uh, with respect to uh, a lack of trust with the government. But in the past two weeks, there has been an uptick, uptick, a favorable uptick in acceptance of the vaccine as more and more people in the black community witness everybody else lining up and saying, well, you know, this is something that's actually a good thing and I'm on board. I've waited a while, I've seen what's going on and I think that this is something that I should do. So the statistics among that community are fortunately moving in the right direction and I'm pleased about that. And whatever we can do to get that to happen even more to create true parity is all to the good. But again, there are these holdouts. Uh, some of them are part of the Trump movement. Some of them are part of the evangelical movement. And then there are some among the political crowd who are, I'm sorry, just not connected to reality and why it is that they fight tooth and nail against the logic of people like Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, et cetera. Most recently, Dr. Burks, uh, Burks noted in a national interview that had we done the same things as countries like New Zealand did at the outset, we might have seen 100,000 deaths and managed all the rest. Everything that happened after the first 100,000 is a case of antagonism and reticence on the part of the leadership. And that is unfortunate because it bucks all the good work that all the public health officials tried desperately to do over and over and over again to get the word out. I don't know what else they could have done because they have been omnipresent in the media. And at the same time, there are people out there who refuse to buy the message. It's a complicated piece. And I get calls to this date from people saying, uh, don't force me to get a vaccine respect my right to my bodily integrity. And you know, that's a difficult conversation to have. I'm not sure what the uh, statistic is for us to reach her, herd immunity. I'll leave that to Natalia. But we do not have to have 100% of the population vaccinated to reach that herd immunity. So uh, we have room for those who absolutely refuse uh, to get the vaccine. Um, I'm not going to uh, make a judgment uh, on uh, their decision uh, in that respect. Um, you know, that's, that's entirely up to them. I will share with you, I did get my notice from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts on Tuesday. And, uh, you know, thankfully, I learned that I was eligible from this show. 
before I did, and uh, I will be getting vaccinated on Saturday. So it is, a, it is my choice, uh, and uh, I hope that I can contribute to that uh, herd immunity uh, by participating in the program. Sorry, I was just going to say the one challenge with herd immunity is that we don't have kids. Kids are not eligible yet to be vaccinated. So we already have to a huge part of our population that is not going to be vaccinated. So we don't have as much space as, you know, if, if all kids were able to. And in, in a year's time, maybe all kids will be able to. Um, so that's a, a big wrinkle with this vaccine. Sorry, Frank, you were about to say something. Uh, I mean, remember the, the law is favors businesses that require the employees to have an injection. It favors uh, businesses that re require, if you're going to use their service or come into their building, you have to have an injection. So society overall is going to force those individuals that believe in individual rights and that it, they have a right not to have an injection. Sure, they have that right, but they can't work they can't go into certain buildings. They can't participate in certain groups. So how how important is that that individual right when society says, "Fine, you know, join the Benedictine Abbey in Gossenbury uh, Abbey in Higham, Mass." Yeah, there's a big debate right now, and I think that's just going to get stronger around vaccine passports. Are they ethical? Are they right? When can you use them? where would it make sense to use them where it wouldn't. I don't think we actually have any consensus, even among the public health community, that vaccine passports are a good thing uh, or a bad thing. They're definitely not a good thing now um, in the sense that we know that a certain privileged uh, group of people or those who have been eligible have gotten it. So if you were to institute vaccine passports today, and given the rates of vaccinations are so unequal, you'd basically be saying those people who haven't had access yet to the vaccine are being punished. But in you know six months, the conversation or three months might be different. And I'd love us to revisit that um, and maybe bring a, an ethicist on the show to, to think about, you know, what are the ethical rights? Where does that interfere? Because, you know, as someone who ha has restaurant and doesn't want to be exposed because a vaccine doesn't make me a hundred percent safe. I would like the, you know, to feel safe. So there are a lot of conversations that need to be had. There are histories of this. For instance, there are buildings today that are no smoking buildings. You can't go into certain places of work, restaurants, et cetera, and you can't smoke, even though there are ways of mitigating smoke in the air with ultrasonic cleaners, et cetera, et cetera. But even though there are ways of cleaning the air with ultraviolet light and so forth, at the end of the day, the public's health in a restaurant or place of work is given precedence over an individual's right to smoke. So there's a history there. There are also histories with vaccinations. Young children have to be vaccinated before they go to school, and the exceptions are uncommon. Uh, so we know that we can't go into certain establishments when we don't have a mask on, but the mask is obvious. It's, it's self-evident. Vaccinations are not self-evident. So that's an interesting conundrum. You know, and let me contribute to that too, that there's, uh, I think we have a some unequal rent floats around in our country, uh, which goes right to our point in terms of how do you start to improve and move toward a more equitable society? You know, when, when a person explains that, well, I have the personal freedom of not of not taking the vaccine or, you know, you're impinging upon my rights to individually do this. And yet at the same time as a country, we have done that 
since the beginning of this country. And so I'm going to circle back down to some of the issues of poverty and racism. Uh, we have relegated people to certain parts of a city or town in terms of you can only live here. We have legitimized that through laws or through processes. We have institutionalized it through real estate uh, transactions and agents. Uh, and yet, you know, people relish the idea that I have all the personal freedoms in this country to basically control my own life. But that's not true. And I think, Pete, your example of certain buildings you can't go into, certain things you can cannot do that are, again, either systemically set up or legislated. And I guess, how do we strike that balance uh, of people truly understanding you know, what are the, uh, you know, what's the scope of our personal, um, and public health, I think, is really sort of that, that sandpaper that rubs up against that whole idea that we are, quote unquote, an unlimited free society. We are not. Uh, we have mores, we have standards, we have certain, I think, legitimate reasons for trying to protect public health. And yet, the uh, you know we keep getting this fired back uh, in in many instances. I must also admit too that it's from not a large segment of the majority, but these are people who, for what for whatever reason, don't see the benefit of the whole. They only see uh, what they want to see in terms of their own individualness. And I guess you and Natalia both uh, know the history of this because much of what we're talking about. I remember with the uh, what was it the uh, with the polio vaccine. There were those who uh, who absolutely refused and said, "No, I'm not going to." You know, this is a government plot. And I remember even in the black community, people who were very skeptical because we were getting the shots, not the uh, you know not the sugar cubes. And so people were very skeptical. Uh, you know, how come it is and stuff that we're getting shots, and yet I hear and see in other parts of the country people are getting these sugar cubes. Uh, so that in and of itself brought, uh, you know, brought a level of skepticism. So public health happens to be a real controversial issue. And I happen to postulate, as I was saying to, uh, to Jeff, the higher the cost to society a a as a whole, and I mean, the, you know, the monetary cost, the more that we tend to kick the can down the road. And so we'll, you know, we'll focus on those things that are cheap and immediate. Uh, and as you said, Natalia, we'll, we'll focus on the cure and not prevention. You know, I, I do want to say that as a public health advocate, I, and as a public health, you know, scholar, leader, worker, I do believe that, you know, we have to give that collective, you know, it, it can't be all about individuals. Individual rights, simply, uh, we can't think individual by individual. That's just not how our societies work. The challenge that I see, and it's sort of a double-edged sword here, one is, this is my right, don't tell me what to do. On the other hand, it's also, how do you explain to a population and say, well, you know, whose fault is it that we have 560,000 Americans who have died? Is it your fault, individuals, because you didn't do things right, or is it the government's fault? So the double-edged sword of saying, no, it's my right, is also then you can't hold accountable failures, you know, your government to failure. So it's not... It's not an easy trade-off. I think we need to be holding governments accountable. And it's interesting, I'm, I'm watching, you know, in my uh, home country where, you know, I grew up where my parents live in Greece, 
the government is saying, you know, the spikes that we're seeing now, the rises in COVID is because of you. It's individual responsibility. They're putting on individuals. You are not listening to our orders. You are going out. You are going and hanging out with your friends. We are seeing the spike because of you. And they're not reflecting on like, okay, what measures should we be putting in place? And so that debate can go both ways. It can go to like, okay, if it's about you, you know, you deal with it. And, and that would be a lose-lose. So I understand people's wanting to have their right to control, but then when they see their spouse or their child or their parent die, will they still want that? So it, it's hard not to be that, patronizing in public health. That, Leah, on a worldwide basis, how are doctors and public health people being trained? Are they being trained in the United States and China and my question really is, how does the, the undeveloped countries get and train and hold public health uh, officials? And uh, uh, is there enough going on on a worldwide basis to meet that need? No, there isn't. That's a really great point, Frank. Um, the U.S. has a very clear, you know, you have medical schools and you have schools of public health. And they're very separate and you've trained, you know, you know, Harvard School of Public Health has been around in some form for over 100 years. There's a complete different sort of career path. In Greece, my mom is, is a professor of public health, but she's in the medical school. She graduated from the medical school and their public health is within medical school, there isn't really that independent public health field. It's sort of seen as a doctors will tell you what to do on public health. And it's not correct in the sense that doctors think very much about individuals and, and what we need is the bigger picture population. And I don't know in many parts of the world whether the infrastructure, the public health infrastructure is there, but not even the medical infrastructure is there. We know countries that have one mental health professional for their entire city, one, you know, so it's, we have an underinvestment or you know we need to do better in many parts of the world on health more broadly both the healthcare and the public health and um it's interesting because places like the CDC have supported and you know USAID has supported public health infrastructure globally because they recognize that an outbreak in one part of the world if you don't have the control there and you know Ebola other things have made this clear puts a risk on the US so investing in public health infrastructure around the world is critically important today where the debate is happening is around vaccines you know we are so this vaccine nationalism you know the US is providing vaccines to any american adult who wants it and we have not from a global perspective even guaranteed a vaccine stock anyone who is a healthcare professional. I have heard that in Haiti, they haven't gotten a single vaccine shot. I don't know, I can't guarantee that. I didn't, I haven't checked that number, but there are many countries in the world that have had zero vaccines and that they are praying to get enough to cover their frontline healthcare workers. And so that inequity does put us all at risk. And we can't think about public health as having uh, geographic boundaries because public health doesn't. Well, Brazil is an interesting case in point of the political ramifications. And again, antagonism. The leadership in Brazil has basically been in denial, deep denial, um, to the point where the country at this point is poised to be a long-term petri dish for more covariants that to be developed uh, and for the virus to continue to run its course and spin off uh, ever more virulent, virulent forms. So it's, it's really unfortunate that not only is there a lack of abundance or a lack of access in some countries, there's also just a lack of acceptance. Natalie, just 
the Great American Rescue Plan, global response, $8,675,000,000 is appropriated for foreign assistance as health programs to prevent, prepare for, and respond to coronavirus, which shall include recovery from the impacts of such virus and shall be allocated as follows. That's just a funding piece. Yeah, no, no, Frank, and I, I agree that now the U.S. is paying attention and there will be money, but the WHO had set up something called COVAX early on and had asked governments to, to buy into it, to basically at the same time as we were reserving shots for our people, uh, Canada was reserving shots for their people, to also reserve some shots for the rest of the world, and that wasn't happening. I mean, I think it was Canada that reserved three times as many as they would need for their population, and, and the U.S. did at least double as many. And, and I understand, as a government official, you are elected to protect your people, and yet these inequities in in you know who gets what have played out in in horrible ways. And I think now it's on everybody's radar. And you know, after May and June, when all Americans have been offered a, a shot, I'm sure the U.S. will continue to lead and pour money into it. But it was it's sort of an after you come next, and that is a problem that we should think about at some point. But um, I don't know. It, it's already 10.15, so I, I feel like we could go into a new direction, but maybe we should be wrapping up. And that, Keith, you can edit out me saying that. <laughs> well, you raise an interesting one in that scarcity generates a Hobson's choice. Consider the hue and cry that would rise up amongst the U.S. population if we started simply distributing vaccines worldwide and people saying, hey, where's mine? What about us? Conversely. I think we had said, though, Pete, you know, we're going to send a thousand vaccines to the healthcare workers in these countries, I think people would understand if it was limited to healthcare workers or frontline healthcare workers. And we said, and that's because if this country loses these, they only have a thousand doctors. And if they lose all their thousand doctors, future pandemics, future health crises in those places will be uncontrolled. I think people would have understood. I would have waited an extra two, three weeks. That's what we're talking about, or four weeks, or even a month, you know, younger, healthier Americans. I'm not saying do it you know, before you have addressed all your highest risk Americans, but we're getting to many states that have opened up vaccinations to anyone. Eligibility, everybody is eligible right now in many states today. And in Massachusetts as of, uh, you know, the 19th of April, and yet so many parts of the world don't have enough vaccines for their frontline healthcare workers. Part of it also is that we're really, we refer to it in the beginning as a wartime effort. And I think language plays a role here and that we need to take this war to the new front and the front is offshore. We need we need to meet the enemy where it lives. Or not use the warfare paradigm. I wrote a piece early on that we should be talking about solidarity and the warfare, you know, the warfare language does create a strange um, tension. So, you know, maybe language of solidarity and, and global kind of holding hands and that that sort of rather than a warfare narrative, but um, that's, a, that's a different story. <laughs> well, it sounds like we're, at an appropriate end, <laughs> as as we think about healthcare and our own healthcare, uh, we we uh, certainly would like uh, the public's comments. Pete, how can they respond uh, to this and other programs? If you'd like to weigh in on what we've talked about today or any of our topics, you can write us at info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We'd love to have you participate. I'm Peter J. For our panelists, thanks for joining us today. 
as we continue our journey of America toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.